Hello, and welcome to the latest English Network Revision podcast. Today you're joining myself, Ted. And me, Alex. And in this episode, we are going to be looking at the poem The Emigre by Carol Rumans. So, without uh, much further ado, we will dive straight into things. And I am filled with joy to uh, welcome back Al to this episode and back to his uh, role as the history man on the spot. So, Al, can you tell me about this poem? Thanks, Ted. Thanks for the intro. I'm feeling the nerves today. Um, I think the most important thing to look at when this, we look at this poem is the, is the title itself, emigre, that term, where does it come from, what does it mean, what's it referring to? Um, so first used or first kind of like popular, popularised during the French Revolution, 1700s, um, and it's talking about the, the French aristocracy who were forced to flee the country following the revolution. They were no longer welcome there, um, that it was a country where they previously, they'd been born and raised, and after political turmoil, um, now became uh, persona non grata, which means that if they were to go back there, they would, they, they would be killed. Very unwelcome. Yeah, it was about as unwelcome as it can be. Uh, and if you look at Carol Rumans and her interests, she's actually spoken about how she looked at um, Russian writers who ended up fleeing Russia in similar circumstances two centuries later when... Their whole, their whole way of life, their culture, mm. their, 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 their people um, were chased out as a result of political turmoil. Mm-hmm. And this is really clear in the poem. Um, and then with when it, these kind of, this kind of thing is we've spoken about in a lot of poems is that a lot of these experiences are universal. It mm-hmm. happened, it's happened throughout history, but it's also happening now as we speak. Um, it doesn't, you just turn on the news, look at what's happening in Syria. People are being forced to flee their homes. Um, it happens all the time. Whenever there's a great political turmoil, a diaspora, yeah, yeah, people people are forced to leave. Some people are no longer wanted, mm-hmm. um, and and you know you, you can you can just reel off the instances in history where this has happened, mm-hmm. where people have had to flee. Um, so we've just spoken about Russia and, and France, but obviously um, in the run up to World War Two, Jewish people were um, forced to flee or or face death, which they did in their in their millions. It's a tra- the, the kind of like tragic consequence of uh, of this kind of turmoil. And this poem explores that kind of experience, mm-hmm. the experience of those who got away. Yeah, uh, and I think what's one of the interesting ideas that this poem is exploring is the the power of memory, which is something we've seen crop up across several of the poems in the anthology. And one of the important questions I think this poem raises is the role memory plays in our lives. And I think you get you very much get the sense in this poem that the narrator is to some extent a, a prisoner of their memory. Um, I think there's interpretations about whether or not she is controlling her feelings and thoughts and emotions or whether or not her actions are very much shaped by things beyond her control and she's trying to, she feels like she's, you know, choosing to do this or choosing to do that, but she's responding to memories that, you know, were caused by events outside of her control. And there's this really interesting relationship here at the heart of this poem between the identity we try to give ourselves and that we narrate for ourselves and the events that happen in our childhood and that happen in the places we're born into that shape our identity and shape our memory and how that yeah. all plays out across our lives. And that's part of like the, the, almost the human condition is that attachment. Yeah. Um, you outsource your identity to, to things like other people, to, to your home city, um, and that's where things like tribalism comes from. Religion is mu- is very much in, like wrapped up in that. Mm-hmm. Um, a, a this lot need of, to belong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, someone asks, who are you? You'd say, well, I am... An Englishman. Yeah. I am a Stoke City fan. Yeah, it's that. It's that kind of thing. People 
I know not many people say that, but <laughs> people like to people like to kind of like boil down who they are yeah. into external things. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's something that existential needs. Yeah. yeah, everybody seems to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really that's interesting what you're saying about the power of memory. We, I remember we speaking in the Poppies episode about how memories are often not to be trusted or yeah. um, they're not a reliable source of truth. And we spoke about how she how the mother in Poppies remembered her son possibly in a in an, a very a very particular way remembered yeah. him as a child remembered the the whole idea of him leaving as being something she probably should have pre- prevented maybe mm-hmm. um and then the, the speaker here remembers her home city yeah um not necessarily in a similar way but in a in a very one-sided way mm-hmm. and possibly not in the in the clearest truest mm-hmm. truest way and I, that idea of truth i think that comes back to the idea of identity as well in terms of if someone says they are something they're shaped by something that's how they see it in terms of you ide- how can anyone question how you identify yourself it's such a difficult thing you, um, it's a really really interesting poem and it touches on some really uh, complex uh, and important ideas so I'm just going to dive in on the first line uh, and it's become a bit of a boring mantra for me that the first and last lines of poems are particularly important and the poet's trying to really convey the key messages here I'm invested in that now by the way well I'm glad I'm glad I sometimes talk sense it's been even even my U10s would probably say that on occasion um, so there once was a country I left it as a child and before we go into that that kind of second line I just want to look at that opening opening kind of few few words there once was a country so I think the first thing we can notice is that the, the, the almost refusal there to, to name a country and kind of, well, who, where is it she's talking about? And that ties in with the idea that this poem could be universal. It could be talking about Syria, could be talking about Russia, it could be talking about, um, you know, kind of Jews living in Poland uh, pre-World War II or whatever it might be. And then one of the things I also think is interesting is the ellipses that follows that phrase. So, you know, that, that's, that, that sentence is left unfinished. And, and why that might be, is that intentional by the... Uh, the poet, so that it is unclear where she's talking about it. Is it perhaps the narrator's lack of clarity, or or perhaps she feels like this place is no longer real, and she or the fact she refu- it, maybe the name for it doesn't even exist anymore. You know, we look at Eastern European countries popped in and out of existence a lot um, in the kind of the the fall of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. And I also like there once was a country. For me, that's got um, a mythical quality to it yeah. that kind of brings the phrase once upon a time. And I think that's just quite an interesting tone to begin the poem on. It's it lacks a certain tangibility. It lacks a certain reality. It's it's vague. It's mysterious. It's it's slightly confusing. And obviously, this is a narrator talking about experiences. But the lack of clarity from the very beginning, I think, is intentional by the yeah. by the poet. And already, it throws into question this idea of well, just how just how true is this narrative that we're yeah. about to be told? Just how reliable is it? And how much is it is a kind of like the speaker's subjective view. Mm-hmm. Once upon what? a time, there was a land yeah, where yeah. chocolate grew in yeah. trees, etc., yeah. etc. And also, that's another part of the human condition, isn't it? When you tell a story, yeah. um, you tell it the first time, and you embellish it, yeah. and you embellish it, and you embellish when it. When I was you know, a child, yeah. yeah. <laughs> before you know, it's all out of hand, and uh, yeah, I think that's that's there's an element of that here. So, Al, as we go on to that second line, we see this idea of, but my memory of it is sunlight clear. That's the first instance we have of light and dark imagery in this yeah. poem. So, what are your thoughts just, on that? Just before that. I was just going to yeah. say the um, the ellipsis as well. That that very just before the almost before the poems even started, um, you've got that usage of genre in the middle, in that first line, mm-hmm. and that and it just reinforces what you were saying about how there once was a country, and then that gap, that pause. Um, what I'm about to say 
it almost can, it always suggests that what the speaker is about to say is is not necessarily um, related to that country or yeah. really related to reality. It's just this is my you know my own story, my own myth, mm-hmm. um, my own myth. Very interesting. I like that. Yeah, I do like that. Yeah, sometimes it just comes out. Oh, well, fair um, play. Right. So uh, if we look at yeah. So so this image of sunlight. So you look at this. Look at that. Um, it's I mean it's a noun in isolation. So that noun in isolation is a is a. It, has connotations that are entirely positive there. We were talking about happiness, warmth, truth, home. Um, sunlight has all of this uh, positivity attached to it. Um, and therefore, we can see the memories of this home city, the speaker's home city, as being unanimously positive. It's going to be something that she, um, I don't know, we used to call the speaker she just because the, the poets are she, but obviously, remember, they're not the same person. Um, it's something that they that the speaker has a very like strong emotionally emotional connection to mm-hmm. and that's something that's repeated all the way through the poem like sunlight is repeated um so it's used four times um twice in the first stanza once in the second once in the third it's almost like a refrain um so this structural point is repetition all the way through this motif of sunlight it's just basically talking about how it permeates every aspect of her life yeah. it's not something that it's not something that ever goes away and it's always this image of positivity, of truth, of light and love. Um, and that's obviously just a really important thing. It's almost like a, a contextual point that you, that you cling on to as you, as you uh, move through the poem. That's the kind of the through line of the poem. Yeah. <clears throat> I also think there's just an interesting point to pick up on here. And this thought's only just wandered into my head now. It might be wrong, might be right, might be wrong. Again, with poetry, interpretation is always important. But obviously with sunlight as well, you know, we need to be really, really careful, uh, unless you're Donald Trump to not look directly at sunlight because it will burn and damage your retinas. Right. So this idea of maybe the memories are sunlight clear, but perhaps the kind of the idea here is should she spend so much time looking at these memories? Is it perhaps yeah, unhealthy for her yeah. to be fixated upon them? Yeah. Yes, it might be a source of light, but never look directly at that source of light, never kind of pay too much attention to yeah. it. Yeah, blinded by that, uh, that perceived truth mm. that isn't necessarily... Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah. That's, that's a good point, that, Ted. Well, I thought you were going to make a w- weird point about um, sunburn then. No, no, no. Okay. Although I have several times as a pale yeah, Irishman yeah, been yeah. a victim of sunburn. Um, so moving on, I just want to look at the... There's a few phrases in this first stanza which, again, are quite important for the tone they generate. So looking at the third line, for it seems I never saw it in that November. And then this is the next line, which I am told comes to the mildest city. Yeah. So in particular, it seems and I am told. Yeah. So for me, I think these are really interesting kind of, you know, the lexical choices here are really, really thought-provoking. So it seems, so does she not remember this directly? Does she not have quite a clear memory of it? Is that because when you're you're quite young, you it's quite interesting, let's say when you're four or five years old, there are large swathes of your time there that you don't remember, but there are certain moments that cut through. Yeah. So it seems, she's saying, well, it seems I I never saw it in November. So the connotations of winter and kind of death and kind of the end of nature. Um, so it seems like she remembers it in summer. And also, I am told. So also this idea that a lot of the information she has about this city and this place now is secondhand news, yeah. which questions the reliability of what she might have been told about it, which yeah. emphasizes the distance between where she kind of spent this child and where she spent this time growing up and where she is now. Yeah. Um, it's just it's an idea of like willful ignorance almost, yeah. isn't it? Like I am told that um, that that November comes to the mildest city, that trouble came, that war came, that conflict yeah. and strife came. However, for her, um, that's that doesn't. I mean, she goes on to say like it can't break her original view. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So he's going to the, the original view being that bright filled paperweight. Um, so this is, this is a quite an obscure metaphor. I mean, the way that I've read it is um, paperweights are often kind of ornamental pieces. If you remember, if you imagine like a snow globe that you that you'd kind of shake and then snow uh, falls over like a like a city scene. Um, I'm imagining that she, she's describing her city something like that, something that's perfect, something that's still almost like a time capsule, just that that moment yeah. that that nothing um, can kind of nothing can change that. Uh, now, obviously, the reality of a city and the reality of, of life itself is that it moves on. Things change all the time. People change. Um, situations change. But for her, she's she's frozen it in that moment. So it becomes something that she can just hold on to, something she can carry around with her, something that's kind of uh, comfortting and, and permanent. Um, and then and then she keeps she, her grounded as well. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so even the, and that's why that's why again we say this tenor vehicle ground um, approach to dealing with metaphors is so important. Think about right. You, she's just described a city to just some uh, kind of archaic ornamental thing mm-hmm. that no one actually owns anymore. Um, however, there's still some very clear meanings to be had there. If yeah. you just take your time with it, draw out that meaning, and then before you know it, you've got loads of good analysis you can mm-hmm. get down on the page. And for getting kind of top level marks, you know, you want to be offering different interpretations yeah. and by spending that time thinking of all the connotations of paperweights and all the different possible meanings, yeah. you, you know, you're really squeezing that that Definitely. metaphor for all it's worth. So in the, in the kind of the seventh line of that opening stanza, it may be at war, it may be sick. So again, you know, looking at the it may be, it may be. Yeah. So that repetition, you know, what, what she, what's the narrator trying to convey here? Is it that she is acknowledging these things are true, but that this isn't the end of the story? Yeah. Or is it that she's saying, well, I don't know for certain. I'm, yeah. you know, I'm not, it, maybe it is sick with tyrants. Maybe it is at war. I don't know. And again, that idea of a distance between this place she lived in once mm-hmm. and the yeah. wherever she she may be now, and and even and that is true. It's it's still she is kind of prevaricating around that point. Like she's not yeah. she's not being um, certain in her language, but also that me- that's um, metaphor of it being sick with tyrants again. That comparative vehicle of um, of the of the, this tyranny. So that's you know like a an oppressive government or or figure, someone who's kind of um, brought war and and pain to to this to this place. Is compared to a disease, um, so the city isn't to blame. It's been infected. It's been infected by the cruelty and arrogance of mankind, um, and that comparative vehicle of a disease also suggests mm-hmm. that there's a cure. So yeah. a cure, like, diseases should not generally have have a cure, um, and the speaker is kind of holding on to that fact. It's like, well, yes, yes, it might be sick with tyrants, but you know, it will pass. Mm-hmm. You know, it will blow over, and one day it will come back to this image that she has, that paperweight, that some that. That permanent thing that she's she's kind of forlornly holding on to, clinging on to, mm. and that's what she that's what she hopes for. And just irrationally, I think sadly you probably wouldn't have enough time to go into this level of detail in your poetry comparison. But if you were to you know tenor vehicle ground uh, that metaphor, it, it may be sick with tyrants, and you think of that idea of sickness. Well, there are two. This is an uneducated uh, medical opinion, but you know two main forms of illness you have. Um, alien bacteria and you have things that are already inside of you so cancer yeah. is something that is inside of you but eventually takes over yeah. so an internal takeover someone who was maybe a part of the government and yeah. went very far yeah. or an alien body something that's come out from outside and this then mm-hmm. doesn't belong and is damaging yeah. and that's just from a historical perspective quite an interesting yeah. metaphor for tyrants it's either a, a dictator that's put in place by foreign power thank you the US government in the 1980s or it's kind of an internal um, autocrat like Saddam Hussein who's risen up and kind of yeah. seize power for himself. Yeah. So again, just tenor vehicle ground, it works really, really well. And you, and you don't have to use all of it. You just need to get just get some of it. Yeah. And and you 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 can like we've brought our own little subjective points to it there. 
but there's plenty of things you could say there. There's mm-hmm. loads of things that we're going to miss out. Um, so take your time with these. I really can't stress it enough. Take time with these metaphors. Really bring something out of it. Um, put your mind to it. Mm-hmm. And just as a point, looking across the whole anthology, I, I think you know, imagery is, is such a vital tool that a poet has to express meaning in a deep way. And part of that is because you know, there's so much depth to these metaphors, to these similes. So I would encourage you, when you're revising these poems, look for metaphors that, there will be a metaphor used in nearly every poem, and look for it, break it down, think about the different interpretations, and maybe even just have have some revision cards that help you to compare the metaphors used in each poem, because that will be so helpful coming to the exam. And on that note, the final line of this stanza, and it's probably my favourite line in the poem, but I am branded by an impression of sunlight. So if 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 we look at that kind of verb, branded, so... You know, for me, the first thing that comes into mind is that there's a sense of ownership. So she is owned by this impression of sunlight. So the impression of sunlight we, we work out relates to the memory she has. But for her to be branded by it implies that there's a sense of where this memory owns her. Yeah. This positive memory possesses her. Mm-hmm. And then when we look at deeper and we look at the historical connotations of, of branding and we think of human beings, then we're inevitably drawn towards kind of uh, the, sl- the enslavement of kind of African-Americans yeah. and how they were, you know, they were actually physically branded with red hot arms to show that they were property. Yeah. And for me, that's just an interesting, there are interesting connotations there of this. She's not, you know, this metaphor that she's, she's been taken over by this memory, not by choice, but has become a slave to the memory yeah. that she has from when she's a but child. It, but it's, it's, it's oxymoronic that in that sense though, because branding uh, as, a, like, as a verbal, as an action, as, a, as a, um, something that you do to, to another thing, like whether mm-hmm. it be an animal or a human, um, is a particularly painful, violent thing. Yeah. And yet she's seeing, she sees it as branded as an impression of sunlight. It's something positive. It's something that's permanently um, kind of, I would say something that she permanently expresses, something that stays with her. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there is that, that point that she almost gives herself over to, to that identity. Like we said, when you, when you outsource your identity yeah. to somebody else, she's outsourced her identity to this, this memory of her city. She's attached so much importance to it. Yeah, yeah and that's who she is. That's yeah. who she is. Yeah. But I think, you know, interestingly, I think it's, there's, a, in my mind, in terms of the narrator here, there's comparisons that can be made with My Last Duchess in terms of the reliability of the narrator. I think she's giving truth to a lie here. So, by an impression of sunlight, it is not necessarily sunlight itself. It's an impression of sunlight. Yeah, yeah. And how can you, you know, you can never imitate the beauty of, of nature in any meaningful way. You could never recreate the beauty of, of, a, sun, of a sunset or sunlight. Yeah. So, the fact that it's an impression of sunlight maybe means that this memory, although it may seem so positive, it's an impression of something positive and that the memory itself cannot be trusted. And maybe she's acknowledging there. With that, um, with that word impression, that this memory isn't isn't all it seems. It's trying yeah. to be positive, when maybe yeah. deep down it's not. Mm. And then the, going into the, the next stand, the second stanza, the, just the first line talking about the white streets, the graceful slopes, and obviously that they glow even clearer. And it's again, it's that image of, of something that um, is, is shining for her, something bright, it's something that she sees as vivid, um, and it's all about this kind of like unconditional positivity. This is something that she's never. She'll never let go of. And yeah. that constant kind of semantic field of light that goes all the way through the poem and is already kind of like, it's, we've had sunlight, bright, um, glow, white. All of these, all of this suggests, again, the power of that memory, the power of that place. And then onto time rolls, it tank, rolls its tanks. And this is, again, this is a really important, I think, metaphor in this poem. And it's a really important opportunity to explore that the mindset of this narrator and what she truly thinks about these memories and this 
this place that she's referring to. So time rolls its tanks. So obviously, you know, we have this idea of the, you know, the um, almost militaristic image of, of time-possessing tanks. And for me, it draws up the idea that, to some extent, inevitably, time brings up conflict. It brings up war. It brings up, um, you know, kind of violence and aggression. Yeah. And that it's inevitable that time will roll its tanks. And also the fact that time itself consumes. It's, yeah. We saw that in Ozymandias. It's this idea of um, eternity as something that is inescapable. You know, everything is going to be swallowed up yeah. by time. And it's this... Uh, it's, yeah, it's kind of like um, another. I've just got another true detective reference to mine where he says that uh, death created time to grow the things that it would kill. Wow! And it's that kind of that very dark imagery, but it's this image that time is something that we live with day to day, but time necessary, like time necessitates change. Yeah, and that change, you know, is not always for the better. Indeed. Um, and just going back to that first sign and what you were saying, this idea that. The more the time rolls its tanks, and the more this place falls into war and chaos and anarchy, the the more positive her memories almost become. And there's a really kind of like you know, um, is the term inverse relationship? As the more extreme yeah. one gets, the more extreme the other gets. So the the more Subverted. yeah, the more yeah. it kind of falls into war, the more positive these memories get. Yeah. And then we've got in the third third line of the stanza, and the frontiers rise between us, close like waves. And she talks about how you know, these barriers between her. And, and you know, there's that interesting kind of, I want to say, collective pronoun us, this yeah. idea that her and the, and the city or her, you know, the narration of the city are really close, yeah. but then close like waves. The, the frontiers rise between us. So, yes, they're close, but there's these barriers are coming more and more and more, so there's more an issue of detachment. Yeah. Is, it then, clo- is it close like waves? Or are they close like waves, like the frontiers close, like a door closes? Close like waves, close like waves. I'm just getting this image of the idea that the, uh, the, the frontiers... It's almost like a, you just imagine. Yeah. I'm thinking of like Moses parting the Red Sea and then it crashing yeah. back down again. Prince of Egypt. I, I think I was thinking of kind so, of close as in kind of like very like the the barriers are coming up so frequently that they're quite close together. Okay. I was thinking the idea of like you know waves are rushing onto the shore ceaselessly, yeah, yeah. Yeah. inevitably. That's a natural cycle. Yeah. So that over time, it's inevitable that she's going to have more distance between her and this memory, her and this place. And it's like and just like see that yeah. it comes with time as well, isn't it? So it's like it is that inevitable kind of Separation. slow movement, yeah, but, but relentless in the same way. So um, in terms of that stanza, just looking on um, at the, the really, really important image here of the, the hollow doll. Yeah. So I think we're going to talk about that. So, later. yeah, so the, the next line should read, that, that child's vocabulary I carried here like a hollow doll opens and spills a grammar. So you've got kind of, Similes within metaphors here, talking about her experience of when she when she first came to when she first left this country. Remember, she's already alluded to the fact that she was she was a child. She was very young. Her memory of the of that country is is um quite kind of scattered. And this simile describes her attempt to kind of foster what is a stunted cultural identity. So she she puts a lot of stock into this identity. She she identifies as someone from her city, someone from her country. And this hollow doll, if you can imagine like Russian, like um, Russian nesting dolls, mm-hmm. you, you put one inside the other, um, refers to the, the. It's referring to her incomplete and basic language. So she spoke that when the, she when she she spoke a little bit of it. She just started to learn it when she had to leave, um, and as she was so young, she didn't have full command over it. And then as a result, she can only speak the odd sentence. It's yeah. it's stilted. It spills out. It's that image. She just it's disordered, incomplete, um, and it's something that she wants to reclaim. 
So she spills a grammar, and yet she soon she'll have every coloured molecule of it. And that's, that's a, I think that's a really, really important sentence for the way she wants to see herself as the, the way the that's the narrator here presenting the face that she wants to present. Soon I shall have every coloured molecule of it. She's yeah. going to reclaim this language. Yeah. And I think, you know, linking back to your earlier point about this need for identity, this tribal urge for belonging. Yeah. And think about my own context as kind of, you know, someone who's kind of Irish and British. Yeah, there's a lot of history in terms of the oppression of the Irish people by Britain. And one thing Britain did very effectively was changing all the, the, the names of towns and villages across the country into English. Yeah. In one fell stroke, you're undermining the culture. Yeah. You look at what ISIS did when they were kind of rolling into new places and trying to set up their caliphate. They would remove any languages that they didn't want, any culture they didn't want. And if you remove someone's language, you remove part of their identity, you remove part of what makes them separate. Mm-hmm. And that's been, the, that's been a, a go-to tool for oppressors and dictators yeah. Throughout history, because that language is part of identity, it's often English. I think it's more. I think it's more than that. I think you you think what what is what is language? Um, and we're sitting here as English teachers, and we're going to say language is really important. But yeah. you know, without language, you have no culture. You you have no communication. But you don't. You also don't even have thoughts. Like yeah. everything, everything that you do, and everything you think, and everything that you write, and everything you can say is 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 enabled by language, but also mm-hmm. limited by language. So you know, you can only you can only it's not that you, you can only feel what you feel yeah. um, or, ex, or understand what you feel or be able to express what you feel if you have the language to do mm-hmm. so. Um, and then if, when you attach that language to your identity and that starts get being taken away from you, well, that's taken away from you, you know, what makes you a human being. Mm-hmm. This is who you are. This is what you are. Uh, that's what separates human beings from every other animal that's existed on earth that we know of um, is this ability to, uh, to create culture and culture is created through language mm-hmm. and there's the ultimate irony as well that if you are seeking to reclaim your language and you're thinking about your identity but you're doing so in the language of your oppressor yeah um yeah that's quite an interesting thought to consider here as well definitely and then, and then it goes on to say uh, that cause says that the language may now be a lie banned by the state and that's really powerful you're yeah. talking about again that's what it's saying it's not so much that you're not allowed to speak that language anymore but if you, if you like extend that thought that we just that we just spoke about there to be who you are is a lie to, mm-hmm. you are no longer seen as human and that's what, and that's what that's what these um countries with these like historical instances they dehumanized the people that yeah. they were that they were persecuting you know they um they portrayed them as animals they portrayed them as something different like the other the the kind of like under people um and it's that that again language is in like intrinsically linked to that yeah um and also it, it just brings if we just talk about the anthology as well there's a really clear connection to checking out my history john Eagle's checking out my history here Definitely. um and when he's talking about how his his cultural identity when his language was, was bound up in that his cultural identity is being oppressed by this kind of this well an oppressive state or um and it's and it comes in the form of um, educational oppression, and he looks to reclaim it. And, that, you know, and we'll, we'll do a separate podcast on uh, checking out history, but the fact that he writes that in um, a West Indian dialect, I think is clearly... Yeah, he's, extraordinarily he's, significant. He's, yeah, he's claiming back not only uh, the, the historical stories, but also his his actual you know culture, mm-hmm. who he is, and that is expressed most purely through language and the language he tells a story in and just in terms of you know focusing on specific words i think the modal verb shall in that sentence soon i shall have every colored molecule molecule of it 
you know, she's really seeking to convey a determination and certainty there that isn't always yeah. present for this narrator. I think that's quite quite an, uh, quite an important note. The final line of that stands out, but I can't get it off my tongue. It tastes of sunlight. So she can't get rid of this this sense of identity. She can't get rid of this language. She can she can't get it off her tongue. Yeah. So again, I think that brings back the question: to what extent is her her kind of longing for this identity a choice? She can't forget having this language and having this identity. And uh, you know, we go back to that earlier sentence: soon I shall have every coloured molecule of it. You know, is she choosing to reclaim this language because she can't escape it? And yeah. this idea, this confusion, because she's been taken away from this place, whether or not literally or metaphorically, mm-hmm. the confuse, confusion around her identity torments her. And mm-hmm. she's very much a prisoner to that, yeah. to that memory. Yeah. Um, and then again, it just repeats that it tastes of sunlight. And again, yeah. it's that it, it, it's we talk about sunlight as light and well, obviously light is sorry, of, of hope and truth. Um, it's something that she speaks that hope and she speaks that truth. And it's, again, it's who she is and it's, uh, it, it's the, the overriding or overpowering power of that place, but probably more importantly, how that relates to her identity, who she is. Mm. And so going into the final stanza, I want to look at the instance of, uh, kind of personification of this city. So in particular lines, uh, 20, well, in particular, I want to look at line 20. Um, I comb its hair and love its shining eyes. And I think this is, uh, first of all, it's quite an easy quotation to remember, but that's not necessarily the reason to look at it. Yeah. I think it's just an interesting choice by the narrator at this moment to personify um, the city in this way. Um, I comb its hair and love its sh- shining eyes. So I think let's just think of the associations there. She's just combing its hair. I mean, in, in life, whose hair do you comb? Usually kind of like a child or a younger sibling, someone that you have this really almost paternal or maternal caring relationship with. And that, you know, when you're combing someone's hair, you know, you have to be, I think we probably all remember at some point someone combing our hair and doing it too harshly and yeah. how much that hurts. So the care and devotion and kind of like gentle nature you need to do, do that with. And then that verb, the verb, importantly, love its shining eyes. So she's making a choice to kind of to, to you know, direct all this positive emotion and care and uh, depth of feeling towards the city. She nurtures it. She she mm-hmm. treasures this memory. I think she, you know, wallowing is one possible way to look at it. She, she kind of wallows in this this lost uh, time she had, this lost place that she's no longer connected with. Um, but she really there's there's an act of love here in that she refuses to let go of this memory. Yeah. And then also before that, she describes it as being something as docile as paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see uh, like this idea of paper being uh, very explicitly explored in tissue um, about how paper has is something that's possibly full of potential, um, but also something that's um, quite transitory. But the fact that it's something that's docile and something which means that it's basically obeys her, it's hers to control, it's something that she can, you know, she, she can do with what she wills. Um, it's almost like her, she sees her memory that way, as in we were, we, were, we were talking just before we started about whether this is something that we can't tell if she controls this memory and she's being mm-hmm. willfully ignorant or if it's something that, like we said, it's, more, it's a much more kind of primal, um, just kind of instinctual memory that she has no control over. But she sees it as something as docile as something that she can control. It's almost like a blank canvas for her to write yeah. upon what she wants. She's filling in the gaps that she know, that we know she doesn't, she doesn't have a full picture. She's, she's almost like sketching in those differences and all of those sketches are positive. It's all, it's all sunlight. It's all, um, colored molecules. Um, it's something that she, it, it's full of love. 
full of truth. So I just think that again just shows you shows the the maybe unreliable nature of memory, the unreliable nature of this of this speaker, um, and how being put being thrown into situations like the one being described here as an emigre, someone who's a refugee, someone who's who's escaping, um, your life is so so violently interrupted and so violently disrupted that you almost in order to in order to cope you had to fill in those gaps and some of those gaps might be fiction or some of it might be um, a very kind of rose tinted glasses view of what the reality is however you can kind of empathize with the with the speaker here especially when she goes on to talk about how much she loves this city she's at shining eyes you know you're looking at eyes as typically like the, the, the windows, windows to the soul, soul yeah. yeah it's a it's something it's something real, something living and breathing, and something that sh- that has um, real palpable meaning for her. Mm. And I, there's one interpretation of this poem, and it's not necessarily the case, but I think it's interesting to consider this idea that, to some extent, this. And I, I in honesty, I don't think this is what Carol Rumens um, was thinking of when she wrote this poem, but that doesn't necessarily always matter. But this idea that the city itself could be a metaphor for a childhood trauma. That let's say you have someone who had a really, really difficult and challenging childhood. And as a child, you're so easily made happy. You know, you look at videos of um, children growing up in Palestine and the horror and the torment that, that surrounds them. And yet you give, you know, five or six lads of football and they're happy as Larry. Yeah. And, you know, that can seem like a trivialization, but it's not. Like children, it's so easy to light the face of a child with a smile. The smallest things fill the world with happiness. Because they're, they're so much less critical and so much more trusting than adults are. But as you grow up and you look back on certain memories, you might think, oh, well, actually, that wasn't quite as good as perhaps I remember it. But you're still left with that that positive feeling. Yeah. And one of my favourite books is Angela's Ashes, which is about a child uh, in Ireland growing up in extreme poverty in Limerick. And he describes you know, seeing his siblings dying of kind of because of the poverty, his father being a very abusive alcoholic. But yet there are all these moments, all these little like childish like gambits that him and his brothers get up to, and these pages are, are lit with a real joy that only childhood can bring. But he knows, looking back at that childhood, that, that it wasn't all happiness. But yet you can't escape the sense that that childhood was in some way fun, because that was a time of innocence before yeah, the definitely. you get the the lens of maturity and kind of critical thinking. And reality, back at it. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. So, that, that's, so what's that saying? Like comparison is the death of joy. Yeah, and it's uh, people use it to decide to kind of talk about how when you compare yourself to somebody else, someone in a similar position, and it and it kind of ruins your experience of life. Yeah. But I think that comes with growing up. Yeah. You know, you 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 start to understand what your um, kind of experiences were relative and to if they. And if they, you know, obviously, some people um, and I can't myself among them can, can look back and say. I was actually really lucky with the childhood that I had, but then there are others again who might look back and say, "Right, that that was actually um, kind of very from, difficult, from, yeah, from difficult, challenging, disturbing, traumatic. You know that, that you can keep going down. Um, yeah, and I think that there's there's a hint of there is definitely a hint of that here, and um, just the idea of not being able to escape as well, like when you. You, you love someone, but they may have hurt you when you're growing up. You can't necessarily distance yourself, from, even though you may may know yeah. that you know that that parent or whoever may not be the best person they could. You still are drawn back to, yeah, to loving that, them and, and that, that positive memory. I mean, that's absolutely true. That's yeah. shown in. Uh, I think that's that's kind of like scientific fact that children will always gravitate towards um, uh, biological parents yeah. or parents who brought them up, even if they've been taken away from those parents mm-hmm. for kind of very serious um, for very serious reasons, mm-hmm. um, where they where they're very kind of like where they were in danger. And their parents, in many many senses, failed them. Yeah. 
um, and if they were being rational, they could probably and they probably and you know this is all mixed in with great anger, yeah. but uh, they could they'll be able to say, well, yeah, they did, you know, they did fail me, um, and yet there are moments obviously when they they want to go back. Mm-hmm. That's that's who they are. And that is an interpretation of the poem. I don't necessarily think it is the interpretation. Not that there is a, you know one interpretation, but I think that might be an interesting way to supplement some of your analysis with additional interpretations and thoughts. Yeah. So I did just want to bring that up. There. I think that it's important to say that what we're talking about here isn't necessarily always what you're going to write down. So when yeah. we talk about the doing the ten of vehicle grounds, definitely use that. That's something yeah. that you can that you can really help to in to, in, to, in, to supplement your analysis or enrich your analysis. Um, but there's also lots of other things going on here. Yeah. There's there's this is the all these poems are um, they're explorations of power and conflict, but they're explorations of the human experience. Yeah. Um, and every reader will have their own experiences, um, but you need to have you need to kind of have lived vicariously through other experiences in yeah. order to properly understand all the different nuances that all these poets bring to bring to the anthology. Hence the true detective and saving poet Ryan references. Yeah, that's pretty much all I've got. <laughs> that's, that's my that's what I've got to put to point. And romanticism. Uh, absolutely. Um, so going on to line twenty um, three, uh, no twenty two. They accuse me of absence. They circle me. They accuse me of being dark in their free city. So what analysis can we draw from this? Yeah, this is, the, the, the poem kind of changes tone here where, she, where we get this sense of threat. Um, we have this repetition of the they and there, these personal pronouns, um, the anonymous they. Um, she apparently stands alone. She's in exile. She's ostracized by those in her home country, but also those in her host country where she is now. Um, and yet that power of place is something that, that always shines through. Um, so they accuse me as absent. They accuse me of absence. They accuse me of being dark. Um, and there's lots of there's lots of connotations there. There's, there's connotations of kind of like maybe it's uh, like race, racism. Um, she's a, she's a victim of racial abuse. Um, but then the, and then they mutter death. So this the, there's hints of violence. And yet she goes on to say, "My city hides behind me." And even though they mutter death, my shadow falls as evidence of sunlight. And again, this is the, that motif that goes all the way through the poem. Of, of truth and, and light and positivity, of warmth and of home and of love. And that's something that shines, like, well, not literally shines through, but very much figuratively shines through this poem. And this image of the shadow falling, um, I think you can, you can make the point here that she's saying that her, her city gives her that strength, that power. And if you think of a shadow as it falls, you cast a tort, a shadow which is bigger than yourself. Um, so she sees her identity as, as more, than, more than just her, um, it's this whole city, it's this whole culture, it's her language, it's her family and her friends and those those white streets and graceful slopes. It's everything. Um, and she's able to stand defiant against against anything that's thrown at her. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's naive. Um, maybe it's kind of like it's based on, the best of a based on a fiction. Yeah, maybe. However, it shows it shows a real strength. It shows a real defiance. And again, we can we can refer that back to um, checking out the history where um, he he talks about he again talks about instead of saying they he says them but it's the same word it's just in a different um, idiolect we're talking about this anonymous power this anonymous they who are seeking to control or seeking to oppress and yet both speakers are standing up to that mm. they are be it they're they're reclaiming culture or they are um, kind of clinging clinging on to culture and ensuring that they uh, they defy any attempt to control them any attempt to oppress them and on that final line I think for me and this is a little bit similar to my last Duchess 
uh, interpretation I have. I'm not, I'm not necessarily that interested in the they. And I feel like, for me, the real struggle in this poem is between the narrator and a memory. And when I look at, so I look at the last line in quite an abstract sense, in this idea that, and my shadow falls as evidence of sunlight. So this idea that the shadow in her life, the kind of this, this symbol of this kind of like of darkness and something that's looming over her is caused by the sunlight. And we know that the sunlight is, represents this positive memory. So this difficulty that she experiences in her life and the struggle that she has is caused by this positive memory. And then also looking at the structure of that sentence, and this is something that I think is subtle and possibly quite important. She mentions the shadow first and the sunlight second. So although the poem ends in this image of a shadow being set, the last word is of sunlight. So she's almost, even at the very final note of this poem, even though she's ending it on this negative image of a shadow, the last word she mentions is sunlight. There's so much confusion that, well, it's a negative image, but it ends in sunlight. And yeah. for me, that represents the confusion, that the contradiction that is at the very heart of her identity. Yeah. She has this memory that defines who she is, and yet it doesn't make her happy. Yeah. And it's interesting. There's also the uh, the um, the like the Jungian shadow mm-hmm. that could be worked in here. So it's this idea that in order to be um, a good person, you need to be able to be in touch with the your capability of doing bad. Yeah. Um, so this idea that everybody has this evil inside them. Um, Jekyll and Hyde. Hello. Possibly. But the only way that you can, the only way that you can truly be good, like you can be good, you can be passive and weak. However, you, if you if that's who you are and you've got no capacity to cause harm, then you you can't really be good because you you have no choice. Yeah. It's like you, that's all you've got. However, if you if you are um, aware of your shadow, um, this kind of like this dark side to you, then you you have a strength then. And you have a decision to make: Do you become something something is good, or do you do you kind of like become corrupt mm-hmm. um, and and abuse that power? Um, and the fact that she she refers to this shadow falling is this this idea that she she's aware of this this power inside her. She feels empowered by you know her her Fueled background, what she's gone through. Yeah, because yeah, imagine someone who's gone so someone who's been a refugee has seen things. They've gone through horrific experiences. Um, and now their identity get... has been attacked itself. Yeah, yeah. And, and they've gone through. I mean, just the just the physical violence of the whole situation. You know, being being hounded out of your own home, having to travel long miles under terrible conditions. You know that that um, that kind of adversity is what brings real mental, physical, uh, and emotional strength. And that means that she's ready to she's ready to face face challenges. You know, she she's she's not scared. She's not scared of they. She's not scared of this anonymous force. Um, she is confident, and again, that, might, that kind of jars with what we were saying before. Because, it, but it's another interpretation. Yeah. Um, she she kind of attributes that strength to that city, mm-hmm. but we know that that's it's more than the city. It's it's her her identity. Mm-hmm. And again, to link back to Angela's ashes, which I was talking about earlier, the opening line is the normal childhood is not worth living. This idea, that this adversity gives you strength. Um, and I think in honesty, like we, we, we've gone off in all these different tangents and all these different interpretations. And this is one of the, the poems that is more open to interpretation in the anthology. I think one thing that we'd encourage you to do is you know, engage with these poems. If you're listening to this podcast, then that means you're probably aiming for, for top grades. And to really access those top levels, you need to have, yes, listen to what we're thinking, take down these notes and, and like listen to our interpretations. But you really need to engage with these poems. Find other pupils who are similar-minded. Sit down, discuss, explore. 
And that will allow you to really understand these poems. Because to get those top marks, you need to have your interpretations, your ideas, and it needs to be in your language and in a way that you understand. Um, but yeah, I just want to add that because we've we've spoken a lot and there's loads of brilliant <laughs> ideas, but you need to definitely make them your own. Um, so the last thing I think we want to leave you with today is just talking about uh, poems that we could compare this to. Um, so I'm just going to start us off. I think for me, um, you know, as I've harped on about and ceaselessly here, uh, the importance of memory in this poem. And so my natural comparison, I'm drawn towards war photographer and this idea of to what extent memory is a choice, to what extent we respond to it and we make a choice to behave in a certain way or to what extent it actually controls us and forces us down certain avenues. And I think I'm, I'm you know, top level candidates. I like to see them you're making these important thematic comparisons rather than facile, obvious, they both use metaphors. But actually finding poems that on a, you wouldn't necessarily think are similar because narrators might be different, but they have on some level a similar experience. So that would be the poem I would encourage some candidates to go for. Yeah. Um, I've, I've already mentioned, I think, checking out my history is really, I think if this comes up, I would probably recommend going for that one just in terms of being able to talk about that um, kind of shared contextual point for AO3, talking about claiming, reclaiming identity um, and defiance in the face of oppression yeah. Um, or, yeah, or a kind of defiance in the face of not necessarily oppression, but um, of adversity, cultural adversity. Um, but also tissue as well, which is the one that everybody kind of wants to wants to avoid. Um, but there's there's definite. I think that the idea of light, like the motif of light, is also used in tissue um, in a in a similar way that it's used here. It's this, this idea of um, of bringing truth and um, and basically bringing good. Um, and I think that's that those two are quite interesting ones. But also poppies as well. We spoke about before. Yeah. Um, this one is this this poem kind of um, straddles both conflict and power, which yeah. um, which all of them do to an extent. But this one is kind of like uh, the power of memory and the power of identity and the power of place, all in the context of mm-hmm. uh, the of conflict, yeah. like a political conflict. And again, the importance of memory and loss in both those poems as well. Yeah, and I think I think just the the more the more I know I can, I can speak from personal experiences doing this. The more I look into these poems, the more I think about it. That the more comparisons I can draw within each one. Yeah. So if you, as long as you, as long as you spend time properly understanding every poem, then no matter which one comes up, you'll be, you'll, you'll almost be spoiled for choice for what you can write yeah. about. You have to kind of edit that yourself. Um, so they're the, they're the ones I recommend. But there are plenty of arguments to, to compare to lots of the other poems as well. Absolutely, and that is where we will leave it for today. So again, we will thank you for joining us, English nerds. And we will wish you good luck with all of your English revision. So it's bye from me, Ted. And it's bye from me. See you later, English nerds. Should have said bye from me, Alison.